Hello and welcome to the History of Modern Greece. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George, and our theme music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is a podcast that covers the events from the fall of ancient Greece to the modern day. This is episode 14, the Peloponnesian War. Sparta rises. In this episode, we're going to cover the uh, devastating war that took place between Sparta and Athens and all of their allies. Uh, This was the war that destroyed everything. So get ready. This is going to be a really good episode. A war like no other. This is how Thucydides described the Peloponnesian War. Sparta looked at Athens and saw a power that it just couldn't compete with. Athens was a maritime empire and Sparta was land-based. Sparta had an invincible 10,000 highly trained hoplite warriors, and Athens refused to meet them in battle. Athens had a superior navy, and Sparta had none. Sparta made a preemptive move against Athens, knowing that if it didn't attack now, it might never be able to do so. There were leaders who tried to slow down the entire machine from turning. They could see that the war was coming, and that if it did happen, it would be a war that they passed down to their sons, as it would take many decades and countless lives to resolve. This war is really a series of multiple wars, and the first was known as the Archidamian War, named after the Spartan king Archidamus, and it lasts about 10 years from 431 to 421 BC. In 431 BC, Sparta brings 50,000 men across the Isthmus and invades Athens. They know all they have to do is provoke a military response from Athens, so they roam the countryside in Attica, burning and pillaging farms as they go. They burn every field and kill every farmer they can, knowing full well that Athens will need to respond with force or risk watching all their food supplies dwindle and disappear. Now, I just want to make a little comment. I was watching a a lecture by this professor, and uh, he wrote on this in his lecture, and he said he he experimented outside where he lived, and he tried uh, burning the the wheat field where he was, like that he owned a little bit of wheat and stuff. But uh, he said it's not easy to set fire to a field unless it's absolutely ripe at the very end of the, the uh, the dry season so he, it's not really an easy job to do and then he, he went out to his back uh, area there of his of where he lived and he tried to cut a, a tree down with just an axe and that is a lot of work so you know to to knock down all of the hundreds if not thousands of olive trees that have been grown there for hundreds of years that is no little job so uh, I thought I'd just uh, let you in on that one So now, Athens, however, had a plan for this and moved all their population behind the major walls of Athens and could resupply them through the long wall that fortified the port. As long as the ships could keep coming, the grain could be supplied to the now overpopulated city of Athens. Uh, That's another little comment. Uh, They said uh, in that lecture that it could have swelled to as much as 300,000 people in those walls, which made it very, very cramped and uh, a dangerous sanitary situation. So now the Spartans roam the countryside and try to destroy all the crops and cut down all the olive trees. Pericles tells the people of Athens not to fear and that there is enough supplies from the empire to feed the people who are safe behind the walls. In a counterattack, the Athenians sail around the Peloponnese and raid the Spartan countryside but they don't have much effect on the Spartans. After no real success, the Spartans return home for winter. 
So this is where we get to uh, one of Pericles' famous speeches. It's one of the speeches he's best known for, called the Pericles Funeral Oration. At the end of the first year of the war, Pericles gave a speech to the public. And this was part of the annual funeral for the War of the Dead. Every year, the Athenians gathered the bones of the dead, and they made a coffin for each Greek tribe, and then filled them with the bones of the dead. And afterwards, they paraded the coffins through the streets for the people to stand and watch and send them off to the underworld. And this was a long-standing tradition of the Athenian Empire, or just the city of Athens in general. And they were brought outside of the gates and buried properly. Once the coffins were buried, a statesman would give a funeral oration to give the dead a final send-off. And this year, it was Pericles who gave the funeral oration. And he decided to go a little off script. Pericles started to talk about the bravery and courage of all the young men who fought and died for Athens. He spoke about how their courage is what makes Athens a great state. And that the women too must have courage, just like their sons and husbands have done. It is the courage of the citizens that hold up the empire of Athens. And after mourning their dead sons, the younger mothers should take solace at having more babies and raising them for the empire. And the women too old to bear children again should rejoice in the fact that they lived most of their life happy, and that their life of sorrow that follows will be short-lived. Pericles speaks about the rigorous training the Spartans put themselves through day in and day out, and how the Spartans' training is so hard that war is their vacation. But he expresses that Athenians live to enjoy life, and have fun, and enjoy their food, and love their family, yet they will march into battle just as any other Spartan. They do not need to fear the Spartans, for their democracy has made their people free. And that is what's worth fighting for. The Spartans are tyrants, and brutal warriors who encourage their children to kill slaves in order to properly train them for combat. The Athenians who, who enjoy their freedoms must be courageous and keep fighting to defend their city-state, for the whole earth is the tomb of famous men. This is a really important speech because Pericles not only has the charisma to address the crowd, he invokes pride in the people of Athens before a great war, and he encourages them not to be afraid of their enemy, who is the most feared infantry the, the world had ever known. And he tells them to embrace their freedoms and their democracy and everything that makes them great, and that they too will be feared and valiant warriors if provoked. Now, Pericles' funeral oration is so famous throughout history that there are a few American presidents who borrowed from the, the lecture, from the speech, and used it in their own. Uh, Abraham Lincoln is known to have borrowed some of the funeral oration for his speeches, and JFK definitely took some of his famous lines straight out of Pericles. And even Barack Obama, when he went around and gave a lot of famous speeches, he took some inspiration straight out of Pericles' funeral oration. Like This is one of the greatest speeches in all of human history. In 430 BC, the Spartans return and attempt to siege the city of Athens again. But they have the same luck and the same results as the summer before. The people were evacuated into the city walls, and the Spartans roamed the countryside, destroying crops and farms. This happens for several years, while Athens retaliates in the exact same way. There is a stalemate, and neither side can really hurt the other. In the beginning, neither really has a plan on how to defeat their enemy. Something different happened in the second year of the war. While all of the people were huddled together in the city of Athens, under Pericles' brilliant command, people started to get sick. The people of ancient Greece didn't know anything about sanitation or disease. 
control. And in the summer of 430 BC, a plague broke out in the city of Athens. It was very hot out, and I imagine there was an abundance of human waste in the city. People died by the thousands. It gets very hot in Athens, and I imagine it would have been almost impossible to breathe without gagging on the gross stench of human feces and decomposing bodies. Thucydides has a very descriptive account of the symptoms during the outbreak. Based off the description of the disease, it was most likely typhoid fever or smallpox. But when it was done, it wiped out anywhere from a quarter to a half of the entire Athenian population. The sickness was so terrible that people grew afraid of their loved ones and would abandon anyone who became ill. Children and wives were thrown out in the streets and the frailty of civilized behavior was exposed. Although Athens was sailing around the coast and raiding the Spartan homeland, they could never deliver a knockout blow. And it was vice versa for the Spartans. They were never able to starve out Athens because of the long wall. The entire time they were fighting the war against the Spartans and the Athenians, their league kept patrolling the Aegean Sea. It was very important that they kept their shipments coming and going so the Delian League members would still pay their tribute. After all, the Athenians relied on their the money coming in from their fleet. And if they stopped providing the service... All the little colony city-states would stop paying the Athenians. So business kept up as usual. The ships came and went, and they patrolled the Aegean Sea, protecting other Greeks from quote-unquote Persians. All the while, Sparta laid siege to the city of Athens and destroyed all of their farms and villages in the countryside. And this would go on for over 40 days, but the Spartans always had to return to the Peloponnese. Even though they were free from the burden of having to tend to the harvest, they still liked to participate in harvest festivals. Their traditions were a big part of them. And it wasn't just returning home to participate in their long-held traditions. The Spartans had to return home. Even though they were free from the labors of farming, they relied on helots. And if they were gone for too long, the helots could possibly revolt and rise up and gain their freedom and independence and that was something the Spartans just couldn't couldn't tolerate so they had to return home just to make sure that their slaves weren't acting up. In 429 BCE Pericles contracted the plague and shortly after he died he was the father of the Athenian Empire now he was gone and the empire was in the middle of a major war with Sparta and now there was a plague ravaging their city whoever was to come next they sure had a huge mess to take care of now it was Cleon who replaced Pericles as the strategoi or the general and his strategy was to take the war directly to Sparta in 427 BC, the Greek polis of Mytilene, which is on the island of Lesvos, which is just off the coast of Turkey, uh, pretty well due east of Athens, they revolted against the Delian League, thinking this was their opportunity to break free from Athens. They either hated Athenian control and wanted to break free, or they were hedging their bets thinking Sparta was going to win the war. Either way, the Athenians had to figure out what to do with the Greek island that was revolting in the middle of a war. This led to the great Mytilene debate in the Athenian democracy. What should they do with Mytilene? Cleon argued they can't make concessions in times of war, and Mytilene should be burned to the ground and their citizens sold into slavery. Diodotus argued that killing everyone in the city is very likely going to anger the other members of the League, and if they ever revolt, 
You know they are going to fight to the death because they know we will kill everybody. Not only that, but it would cost a lot of money killing all those people and tearing down all those stone structures. They could spend that money elsewhere. This is a very famous debate in the writings of Thucydides, and neither side argues a moral point. It's all cold, calculating tactics. In 425 BC, the Athenian League launched an invasion on the southern tip of the Peloponnesian Peninsula in the city of Pylos. Their entire purpose was to start a helot revolt and bring down the Spartans from within. If Athens could free the slaves, then Sparta would have no one to farm their food and they would be forced to quit the war. This was hitting so close to home that Sparta sent an immediate response with their entire available naval fleet. Of course, the Athenians were far superior to the Spartan ships and they defeated the Spartan boats, stranding a bunch of them on a tiny island where they were all forced to surrender. How embarrassing. The battle wasn't just on land though. The Spartan hoplites were organized and ready for battle, but the Athenians wouldn't engage with them directly and instead pelted them with spears and arrows until the Spartans were eventually worn down. It was an embarrassing defeat for the Spartans and after this incident, they sued for peace with the Delian League. So this marked the end of the first segment of the war. At the time, they thought the war was over. And uh, it was called the Peace of Nicaea, or Nicaea. So in 421 BCE, the Peace of Nicaea was signed between Sparta and Athens, where a temporary truce was reached. Both sides were completely exhausted as this war had raged on for 10 years now, and they both needed to recover. But all this did was cause a cold war between the two city-states. And proxy wars were fought in further Greek city-states. This peace didn't last. Because the reasons for the war starting in the first place were not resolved, this peace didn't last because the reasons for the war starting in the first place were never resolved. Athens still had a naval fleet and a very long wall protecting their city and connecting it to a port. So the Spartans remained fearful of their imperial neighbor. Thucydides says here that if you go to war, you better finish it, because if you do not, you will leave this war to your grandchildren. In 420 BC, Alcibiades became the strategos, or top general, and almost immediately called to resume the fighting between the Delian League and the Peloponnesian League. Alcibiades was the nephew to Pericles, and spent a lot of his youth in the political theater, and was even a pupil and friend of Socrates. Alcibiades' call for war was answered by all of the oarsmen now unemployed, but was greatly protested against by the farmers who just wanted peace in the realm. Alcibiades was a young leader and had a lot to prove. He was the nephew of Pericles, and he needed to show the Athenians that he was more than just his uncle's nephew. And uh, this does bring up an interesting point that I want to talk about is, you know, this war was devastating to all of the peasants and people who just lived off of the land. But if you were uh, an oarsman, this was the greatest time for you because you were making all kinds of money. I mean, unless your ship was sunk and then you died. But as soon as the war ended, all these oarsmen or thetes were unemployed and they weren't getting any money anymore. So it's a uh, very fascinating in 418 BC, at the Battle of Mantinea, where the Athenians and all their allies face off against the Spartans and all of their allies in a purely traditional hoplite battle. Now, this battle takes place, it's, it's, uh, I looked up the Google Earth, it's pretty well the heart of the Peloponnese, just north of Sparta. And um, the end result was Sparta wins. And a lot of historians consider this the, the beginning of the reversal of the trend. Uh, it's starting to go the other way. 
In 416 BC, representatives from Sicily arrive in Athens, representing one of the city-states on the island. They call for the help of Alcibiades in settling a dispute with another Greek city-state. So this is two city-states arguing it out over there. Now they've come to Alcibiades to help them out. Alcibiades' plan was to capture Syracuse, which was a, a Greek city colony, and eventually all of Sicily, and then cut off all grain shipments to Sparta. With the war in the Peloponnese against Sparta and Corinth and Thebes, it would seem silly to send an army to Sicily to get involved in a, another Greek dispute. In fact, there were many people within Athens' democratic stage who strongly opposed the invasion of Sicily. Pericles made it clear when the war started that Athens would only be able to hold on to its empire if it didn't try to expand while fighting the war against the Spartans. There were those who would try anything to make sure Alcibiades and his stupid plan to invade Sicily failed. One aspect that doomed the mission from the beginning was having three generals in charge. All of them had a different plan. Lamachus proposed a surprise attack on Syracuse. Hit them right away in the capital and try to deal a fatal blow in the first shot. Alcibiades proposed a more diplomatic approach with the local cities on Sicily. Gather support and then launched an attack against Syracuse. Nicias proposed not fighting at all, instead forced the city of Salinas to settle their, their dispute with Segesta, and then returning home. Eventually, Lamachus backs Alcibiades, making it two to one, so now they are heading to Sicily because of Alcibiades. Following Alcibiades' strategy when they land, when something happens that throws a wrench in all of their plans. The night before the fleet set sail, a series of vandalism acts were carried out on religious statues in Athens. Someone had gone around with a chisel and castrated all the marble statues of Hermes, the patron of travel. People flipped out. This was sacrilege, and people started pointing the finger at Alcibiades, and eventually a mob starts to grow that wants to get him and probably kill him in the streets. There was no proof that Alcibiades disgraced these religious statues. But there was a witness who claims they overheard Alcibiades make fun of one of their religious ceremonies. And other members had witnessed him and his friends wandering the streets at night very drunk. Therefore, the mob drew the logical conclusion Alcibiades did it. just want to do a quick little uh, discussion on this. The whole reason they're going to Sicily is because of Alcibiades. This is a terrible, terrible plan. There's peace. All this is going to do is restart the war. There's nothing really to gain other than glory for Alcibiades, who has something to prove. They're going to sail across the sea and invade Sicily, which is traditionally a Dorian Greek colony, which means they're, they're directly related to the Spartans. They're, they're just picking a fight, and no one wants to go. Al Alcibiades is really the main one uh, promoting this. And he's doing it just to prove that he is better than his uncle. And the fact that everyone blamed the statues getting castrated on him is just the beginning of a bizarre string of events. He is a prize. He's always In 415 BCE, 
the Athenian fleet set sail for Syracuse. First, they sailed up the coast of Greece, meeting their allies in Corsaira, before crossing the sea and connecting with the coast of southern Italy. At this point, there were over 134 triremes, 5,100 hoplites, 480 archers, 700 stingers, and 30 cavalry units, not to mention the thousands of feats needed to oar the triremes. When the fleet finally arrived in Sicily, the first thing they noticed was that the terrain was very different from mainland Greece. It was much flatter and way better for horses. The Greek hoplites were not going to be as effective in this terrain. This, was, this land was a lot closer to that in Macedonia and Thrace. And when they made it to southern Italy, they had a lot of trouble recruiting allies. And to make matters worse... They found that the city of Segesta didn't have the money they promised to contribute to the campaign. This made the three commanders very worried about the future of the campaign. Nicaeus, suggesting that maybe they should take this as a sign and call off the campaign, after parading around the island waving their flag, of course. So he didn't want to continue the fight, but he wanted to show his presence. He figured, you know what, let's cut our losses, we'll sail around the island, we'll wave our flags, we'll show our presence, and then we'll go home. No one needs to die. Of course, that is not how things happened. The fleet set sail for Catania in Sicily, where they were met by another Athenian ship. Only this ship wasn't here to help them along with their long campaign. This ship was sent here to arrest Alcibiades for his crime against the statues. Alcibiades only agreed to return to Athens if he could sail home in his own ship. Like, what a detriment to the war effort this is. You come sail across the sea and arrest the leading general of an invasion right before they're about to invade. Now, the fleet was ordered to continue on without Alcibiades, sending all of his allies to war, while he got dragged through the courts with all of his political enemies on the jury. Like, this was a total trap. Anyone who supported Alcibiades was on this invasion force, and everyone who hated him was going to be on the jury that was about to convict him. Alcibiades knew it was a trap, and that he was going to be executed as soon as he arrived in Athens. He did what he needed to do to survive. With Alcibiades now gone, Nicaeus took control of the army. But he never changed the plan. So they land on Sicily and try to gather allies in an attempt to overthrow Syracuse. The Syracusans have a very slow start at fighting the Athenians, and are actually defeated several times in the opening stages of the war. But pretty soon, Nicaeus is going to really wish he had stuck with his original plan of just sailing around the island with some flags and waving them and going home. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the history of modern Greece. See you next time. Stay safe and stay awesome.